Well, welcome back to uh, week two of our study of Romans 8 through 16. Looking forward to getting back into it today, but let's just start with a word of prayer and then we'll dive in together. So let's, if you would, join me and let's pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do come before you as your adopted children this morning. We thank you that you have redeemed us through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, that you sent your Spirit into our hearts to give us new life, to give us faith and repentance, to unite us to Christ, to give us every spiritual blessing in Him. We thank you for these things, and we know that it's only because of your grace and power that we are here this morning to study your word with eager hearts and So we give you all the glory, and we do ask that you would work uh, within us, even throughout this Lord's Day, as we gather for Bible study this morning, and also corporate worship in an hour or so, and, and the fellowship that we have afterwards, and we just pray that you be with us to help us to honor you in all that we do, to help us to bring you glory, to give you our hearts and praise, to express our love and devotion to you. And also that you would minister to us, that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you, that you would illumine our hearts, give us understanding of your word, that you would affect our hearts, give us a deeper love for Christ, fill us with the knowledge of him, wash us, sanctify us, make us more holy this morning, and teach and instruct us, Lord. You know where we need to be corrected, where we need to be rebuked where we need to be reminded of truths that we've forgotten. And so even this morning as we study Romans 8 again, we just ask that you would help us to understand it, help us to grasp it and to accept its truth and to walk in light of it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, this is our text this morning, Romans 8, 18 through 25. I mentioned before we're going to be taking it slow through 8, 9, especially, and then we'll ramp it up as we get into 10 through 16, spend a little bit more time in 10 and 11 as well. Uh, But just because those passages have a lot of difficult material that it will behoove us to just take a little more time to spend in them. And and, uh, so that's where we're headed. There will be This is not reflective of the dates because there will be a lot of breaks and things in there for different things like Easter and we have a missionary visiting and etc. So, but that's where we're headed. Just a little bit of review here. Just to give you, remind you of the context, Romans 1 1 through 17 is about why Paul wants to preach the gospel in Rome and he says it's because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then in Romans 1.18, all the way through chapter 5, he basically explains what the gospel is that he is preaching, that he wants to bring to Rome. And we could summarize it this way, that the unrighteous can be saved from the wrath of God by receiving the gift of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then when we get to Romans 6 and 7, could be summarized this way. These chapters teach us that those who receive that gift of justification by faith receive other blessings as well and must serve God instead of sin because they've been brought from death to life. 
So in other words, the legal gift of right standing with God comes with a real spiritual transformation of your life. And then finally, as we move into Romans 8, last week we covered verses 1 through 17. And in this section, we saw that uh, Paul really continues the theme of chapter 7, of chapter 6 and 7, really. And he's explaining that those who receive the gift of justification by faith can, they must, obey God. And they can do that because of the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And then he sort of transitions to explaining that that very Spirit who helps us to obey God also guarantees our adoption. And because we're children of God, our inheritance in the future of glory with Christ. You remember how he said, if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. So now today, verses 18 through 25 is what we're going to be looking at. And in this section, the future inheritance that believers hope to receive with Christ as co-heirs with him is sort of explained. And I'm going to summarize it this way, that the inheritance that we receive as the children of God, the adopted children of God and dwelt by the Spirit, is bodily resurrection in a redeemed creation. So that's summarizing where we're headed today. So Romans 8, 1 through 4, this is where we're going to start. So if I could have someone read those verses, it's up on the screen. So Romans 8, 18 through 19, we're going to start there. Read there. Uh, 18, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. All right. Okay. So just to summarize here, and you think, man, your summary is longer than the verses. <laughs> That's right, uh, because I'm, I just want to tie this into the previous context. So in the last verse, verse 17, if you look there, you'll see that Paul had said that as, as God's adopted children, we as Christians are co-heirs with his son. So you think, who is it in a family that in the ancient world would have an inheritance from the father? And that would be the son, right? Well, Jesus is the son of God. He is the ultimate heir of an inheritance from God the Father. And we as Christians, because we are united with him, are co-heirs with him. And he contrasts this reality with our present sufferings. He says, though we, if we suffer with him now in the present, just as he suffered, right? Then we will also be glorified with him in the future. So this issue of co-heir with Christ and being glorified with him in the future are are brought together. So somehow our inheritance as the adopted children of God with Christ is described as being glorified with Christ in the future. So that's verse 17. Now we come to verses 18 and 19. And what he's doing playing off of that is he's assuring us that this glorious inheritance, right, being glorified with Christ in the future is going to far outweigh any suffering that we experience in the present. 
And notice at the end of verse 19, he says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So this glorious inheritance is so great that it incorporates the entire created order. So when we think about the sufferings that we experience, you know, think about the sufferings that you have experienced in your life, some of them very deep, right? They've been the source of great sorrow and pain in your life. And then think of the sufferings that people experience, you know, more broadly. Think of what you know of history uh, and how much people have suffered, both that you know in the present and and also in the past. And you think, man, how could anything outweigh all those sufferings? And Paul's telling us that the, the glory that awaits us, this future inheritance that's going to encompass all creation, is so great that if you were to put it into the balance of the sufferings that God's people have experienced in this life, it, it just, it's not, no comparison, right? The, the scale just, ding, like this. So it, it's tantalizing, right? Because it makes you think, okay, wow, um, that is good news, right? So let's work through this. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So this present time, in Galatians 1.4, Paul calls this present time, he calls it this present evil age. Right? So it's an, an era in history. That word translated age is like, could be translated era. This present era in history that stretches from the fall to the second coming, really, is characterized by evil. Right? It's characterized by fallen humanity, by a, a creation under the curse, and by demonic oppression. Right? Uh, because after all, it was a result of Adam and Eve submitting to the wisdom and command or leading of the devil rather than of Jesus. And so that's why the scriptures now speak of the prince of the power of the air. Right, who has at work and the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2. So that's what this present time is characterized by, this present evil age, by a fallen humanity, a cursed creation, the oppression of demonic powers. And so it's not a surprise that our life on earth is filled with sufferings, right? And that includes things like natural disasters, bodily ailments, the result of the curse, right? but also human evil, all of the things that we do to others that are evil, and all the things that others do to us, to one another. So that's another source of great suffering, perhaps the greatest suffering. And then, and then behind that, sort of behind the, the scenes of our visible eye, is the constant attacks of demonic powers. And you think of Paul in Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. You think of all the people that Jesus came across who were demonized. That's the word in the Greek. It just means afflicted, attacked by demonic powers. 
So believers experience an additional suffering in this, and that is the suffering of persecution for the sake of their faith, right? So they have all the the normal batch of human sufferings. And then added to that is the hostility of the world and the devil against them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So that's a lot of sufferings that we experience in the present. And uh, you think of Paul, and when he wrote this, you think, well, you know, Paul, he didn't really... How much did he know about suffering, right? Well, uh, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 28, you can read that. We're not going to read it just for the sake of time, but where he sort of delineates all the things that he'd suffered. And right at the top of that list is he was shipwrecked multiple times, spent a day and the night in the deep, which means he was under the danger of shark attack, which has got to be possibly the worst possible suffering that you could ever experience. But no, I mean, he understood. He was beaten to the point of death multiple times. He was, um, he's been imprisoned. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been suffered from hunger, from cold. Uh, and then he had the weight of all the churches upon him. So he knew what he was talking about when he talked about the sufferings of this present time, right? But the second part of verse 18, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he considered all these sufferings to be insignificant, insignificant, not worth comparing if they're put into the balance over against the the glory that is to be revealed to us. And notice, if it's to be revealed to us, I think the implication is that it already belongs to us, right? If you think about how that inheritance, an inheritance works, right? It belongs to you, but you don't receive it until a future time. It's ours now, right? And that, that's, something, that's a theme that is there in the scriptures on many occasions. Um, we are sealed by the Spirit until that day of redemption. We have an inheritance bestowed on us that is kept in heaven for us, 1 Peter chapter 1, right? Mm-hmm. But it will be revealed to us. It will be possessed in fullness at a future time. And he's saying, if you were to take that future inheritance and compare it to the sufferings of this present life, no comparison. And in fact, I, I want um, to just look at one passage here. 2 Corinthians 4.17. Look at that real quick. This is another place where Paul says something similar. He talks about how our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then in verse 17, he says, it's like 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. But the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And you could say there's almost like two aspects to it there. There's the weight aspect. The present sufferings are light in comparison to the weight of that future glory. But also there's the length aspect, right? The sufferings of this present life are just temporal, temporary, right? Short compared to the eternal uh, length of the glory that awaits us. So that's... That's uh, 
a pretty important um, truth for us to grasp, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I like verse 7 in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So that we have the suffering of this age, we still have the power right. to endure it. Right, absolutely. And I'm going to argue that the phrase to be revealed to us corresponds with the second coming of Christ. I'm not going to get into why exactly, but I think if you compare it to multiple other passages and even within this text itself, it, it becomes pretty clear that the uh, the time when this inheritance will be revealed to us is the last day, the last time the great Christian hope, the parousia, the coming of Christ. Verse 19 is the last verse there. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So there's a sense in which the revealing of this glorious inheritance, we're we're beginning to get into in verse 19 what it will consist of. And on the one hand, you have this phrase, the revealing of the sons of God. It's interesting. We're gonna, I'm going to do a little interpretive question next on explaining this, but I think what he's talking about there is the fact that, you know, if you think about our identity now, we're like, you know, not, we're, <laughs> we're nothing special in the eyes of the world, right? In fact, if anything, Christians from the perspective of the world, are low and despised, outcast, right? As a general principle, I know there are times and places when that's not true, but if you take the whole scope of history, you know, that's been, there's been a hostility toward God's children, a a looking down upon them in this life. But there will be a time when the curtain will be pulled back. And the the reality of of the fact that we are God's children, not because of anything, you know, people aren't going to be like, wow, they were, they were so great, right? It'll be the fact that they have been given so much grace, right? And so there will be an unveiling, a revealing to the world, a public vindication, in other words, of God's children before they'll create the world. And, The entire universe is waiting with eager longing for that to happen. The the creation itself is waiting with eager longing for that day in which the children of God, the people of God, the church, will be unveiled for what it truly is. The bride of Christ, the children of God, the revealing of the sons of God. And that kind of leaves you with the question, doesn't it? Well, why would creation long for that day? And that leads you into the next section. But I want to stop here and just look at this little phrase. What does Paul mean in verse 19 when he speaks of the revealing of the sons of God? Well, in verses uh, 14 through 16 of this uh, chapter here, let me just pull up my Bible real quick. He had said, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are 
the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. And when you read that, you realize, okay, Paul's already said that every true Christian that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit is already a child of God, a son, a daughter of God, right? So we know that that's the case. But during this life, our identity as God's children is not evident to the world, which is why, like Christ, Paul said in verses 17 through 18, that our present life is going to be filled with sufferings, right? The whole world knew, and it was already manifest, that we were the adopted children of God, right? Then our life in the present would be different. But our identity is not clear. It's not revealed. It's concealed. And therefore, we experience hardship and persecutions in this life. But in the future, at the second coming of Christ... Our identity as the sons and daughters of God, the children of God, is going to be revealed. And I think that's revealed to the world, to all mankind, and to the angels and and the demons in heaven. Of course, there's already some knowledge of this, but it will be a public display, a public vindication. You think of how when Christ returns, what's going to happen to us? When he appears, right? The resurrection of God's people, right? He will come with those who have already fallen asleep and those who are still alive in the earth. And they will be, those who are alive will be transformed into a state of glory. Those who have already died will be raised in glorified bodies. And we will be caught up together in the air with the Lord. And I know that your eschatology is going to, you know, affect how you believe all this transpires. But Paul has that, phrase, and we will always be with the Lord, right? And so there was going to be this, there's going to be this clarity that the church is the bride of Christ, his people, revealing of the sons of God, right? And I, so I think this is going to be something that will take place when our bodies, when we are raised in glorified bodies to be with him forever. And I would argue that that coincides in other words, 1 Thessalonians 4 and, First Thess- and uh, 2 Thessalonians 1. 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about the resurrection of God's people. 2 Thessalonians 1 talks about the judgment of the wicked. That he will come and vindicate his people. Those who afflicted his people, he will afflict. And he will give relief to his people. So in fact, let's, let's look at 2 Thessalonians 1. And we'll read verses 5 through 12. Now, by the way, remember, if you remember the book of Acts and you remember the planting of the church in Thessalonica, he was only there for a short time before the Jews from Philippi and then Berea, the Jews that had been following him down and stirring up trouble for him, before they arrived and began to basically stir up riotous opposition to him. And so he was only there for a short time before... He was run out of town, and the church there was left behind in the fires of tribulation, right? And he was, if you read those letters, you see he was worried about that. He was thinking, I wonder what happened to this church. (laughs) Here they are, brand new Christians left in the fires of persecution and trials right away. I mean, imagine that. 
And so he writes to them, he says, if you go back to verse four, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. So he had heard already that they were enduring these afflictions and he's, he's amazed and he's full of joy. He says this, your endurance of these persecutions is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day. And notice this, on that day, to be glorified in or among his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So you see, get the picture? Christ returns, he deals out vengeance. You say, well, aren't we vengeance? I mean, we're not supposed to be vengeful. No, we are not because we're not the judge. But you remember Paul says, don't take vengeance in your own hands, but leave vengeance to the Lord. He will repay. He is the judge and he will repay. That's what vengeance is, by the way. Repayment of sin. He will repay the wicked for their wickedness with perfect justice. And that's what he comes to do in this last day. And all the while he grants relief to his people. And then on that day, he is revealed in that way, in his glory with all of his angels, dealing out vengeance upon the wicked, but to be glorified with his saints. You see? And they are marveling at him. This is the revealing of the sons of God, right? This is that time when they will be rescued from their afflictions, their present sufferings, and be glorified with Christ. So in this way, the revealing of the sons of God will be, I'm arguing, their public vindication and rescue by God. I would also say, this is why, if you look at Romans 8, down in verse 23, he says something very interesting. Now, we'll get to the context here, but just read this verse for a second. He says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You say, but Paul, back in verses 14 through 16, you say we already are the children of God. We already have the spirit of adoption. And we cry out to him, Abba, Father, we are already adopted. Why do you say that we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and tie it in with the redemption of our bodies, with our resurrection? I would say this is because in the New Testament, you always see this. You always see this now and not yet aspect to God's work, right? That we already are adopted, but our identity as the children of God and the fullness of our redemption as his children awaits that future day. So we are his adopted children, but the consummation, the fullness of our adoption awaits that final day. And what will it consist of? The redemption even of our physical bodies through resurrection and our public vindication as his sons, right? as his children.
So I think that's what, that's what he's talking about if we go back to that last line. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation is waiting for that day when the redemption of God's people will be finally completed and they will be publicly displayed as his children and thereby vindicated before a world that had oppressed and opposed them, right? All right. So any questions on that or on this uh, interpretive issue or comments? All right. Stunned silence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Did someone have a... Okay. All right. Well, let's move forward. Romans 8, 20 through 22. So if someone would read these verses, 20 through 22, someone read those. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. But we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Okay. Here's a summary of what, what I think these verses are getting at. I think in these verses, Paul is explaining why the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He just said that, right? Now he's explaining why. And his answer is that because when God's children are finally set free from sin's effect, creation will be too. Right? So creation is waiting for that revealing of the sons of God because it's going to involve humanity being set free from sin's effects. And when that happens, creation will be set free from sin's effects as well. All right, I think that's the point here. So let's walk through verse 20, the first part there. The creation was subjected to futility. Now, when you think about that, that's an obvious reference, I think, to Genesis 3, 17 through 19. In fact, would someone read those verses, Genesis 3, 17 through 19? And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Alright, so... You see that line there? Cursed is the ground, the earth, because of you. Paul says the creation was subjected to futility. So first of all, who subjected it? God. Why did he do it? Because of Adam's sin. And what was the result of the curse? Well, there's, that's where futility comes in. He's telling Adam, you're going to work the ground. And what's it going to bring forth from it? thorns and thistles and you'll get bread out of it but only by the sweat of your brow right so this is a a long way from the garden of eden here right a long way from the original pristine creation now the ground has been subjected to futility as a judgment for adam's first sin right so verse 20b He says, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So the creation here is personified, right? As if the creation was saying, no, no, you know, it didn't want 
it was subjected against its will. But of course, we know if we're talking about mountains and rocks and rivers, that the creation doesn't have a will in that regard. So what is the point? Well, the point here is that it was subjected to futility. It was put under a curse. And that was not its original condition, right? So the personification of it, that it was subjected not willingly, is a way of saying, this was not how it was supposed to be, right? This was not the original state. This was a judgment upon the creation because of Adam's sin. And notice that connection. As Adam went, so went the creation, right? And why was that? Well, because the creation was created as the theater for God's relationship with humanity. And so its fate was tied up with that of man. Now we get to verse 20b, that little phrase, in hope, and we move on to 21, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So the fact that is stated in 20b indicates, or the fact that it's in hope, indicated that it's not going to be a permanent reality, right? It was subjected to futility. He adds in here, bondage to corruption. So the creation was subjected to corruption. And that happens, you can see that in all kinds of ways. Like, for instance, everything dies, <laughs> right? Everything wears down. Things are beautiful, but they're also marred. Right? Subjected to corruption. But there's hope, in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to, to corruption. So it's not going to be a permanent state. Currently, the creation is subject to corruption. It is subject to futility. But it's going to be set free from these things. Set free from corruption. Set free from its futility in the future. And you can't help but know what Paul is talking about here because of you know, other passages in the New Testament. When, so, for instance, if uh, you would turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, we've already seen that he's talked about the revealing of the sons of God, which I've argued is a reference to the, the return of Christ, and um, it's tied in with the redemption of our bodies, which is the resurrection of our bodies, so the end of history, the return of Christ, the resurrection of God's people. Well, if we jump into 2 Peter 3, we know that something else happens at that very same time, right? Chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there it is. It's this time when creation will be set free from its bondage. It will correspond with the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, in which he will judge 
humanity, we saw that in 2 Thessalonians 1, he will destroy the present created order, melt it down, and he will create it anew, right? He will redeem not only our bodies, but the whole creation. He will resurrect our bodies and make them glorious, and he will create the whole universe anew and make it glorious. That's when it will be set free from futility and corruption, which is its present condition, right? And if you want to read more of what that's like, go and read Revelation 21 and 22, right? Where it says, and then I saw in this vision a new heavens and a new earth. And he talks about there will be no more curse. And he draws in all this imagery from Eden. The trees of life are there and river flowing out. So that, I think, is what Paul is talking about in our text. That's the time when the creation will be set free. Then if you get to verses 21b through 22, it will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's a very provocative imagery, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So the creation is described as being like a woman in labor. Now, the good thing about a woman being in labor is she's moving toward a goal, right? But until that goal is reached, it's miserable, right? (laughs) And, And the labor pains increase. And it gets worse and worse until the moment of birth. And that's what creation itself is, again, being personified, being described like a woman in labor, subjected to corruption, subjected to futility, groaning under the weight of all of that, but moving toward a goal, right? That day when it will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And he says here that at that day, the creation itself will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, whatever that means, when the children of God obtain the freedom of their glory, and by the way, we've already been seeing that, right? If they suffer with him, they will also be glorified with him. And you could go back to chapter 5 where he talks about the hope of glory you, talk, you go on later on in the chapter, he says, those who have been justified are also called, and the, or the, those who have been justified will also be glorified, right? At the end of the golden chain. So this language is rife through Romans and rife through Romans 8. But when the children of God obtain that glory and the freedom that comes with it, then the creation will share in that, right? They'll be set free as well. It'll be set free as well. So that's what he's saying. I want to look more closely at this phrase, the freedom of the glory of the children of God, verse 21. What does that mean? Well, I think the glory of the children of God refers to the same basic thing as we were talking about when we looked at that phrase, the revealing of the sons of God. It's an eschatological, an end times event when they will obtain their glory, right? The glory is their future inheritance. We already looked at in verse 18, right? It refers to the condition which believers will achieve in the future. And since the creation waits with eager longing for it, according to verse 19, and hopes for it in verse 20, 
We know this is a future event, right? And I think it's almost certainly explained the freedom of the glory of the children of God there in verse 23. When you go a little bit farther down in Romans 8, in verse 23, it talks about, um, let's look at that real quick. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. So we also groan. And what are we waiting for? As we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the freedom of the glory of the children of God as a future event tied in with the second coming of Christ when we will be glorified through resurrection. So, all those wrinkles, you know, uh, all the sickness and ailments that we have, back injuries, things that can't be reversed by doctors, but even more sweet than that. All those bitter thoughts and selfishness and pride and all that remaining corruption that we struggle with and we groan under the weight of it will be set free from it all when we are raised in glorified bodies, free from sin and all of its effect. Right Right now we're freed from the penalty of sin and the enslaving power of sin. On that day, we'll be set free from the very presence of sin altogether. Right. Praise God. And the freedom of that condition is that, what I just said, but let me add in there, we will also, and this is tied in with the fact that it will be the consummation of our adoption. If you look down at verses 29 and 30, just a few verses later, he says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you see, I think the language of glorification tied in with the redemption of our bodies is also coincides with being perfectly conformed to the image of his son so that we will be children of God like brothers of Christ, who like him, he is the image of the invisible God, and we too will bear that image. It's a wonderful picture. All right, so that, I think, is what that phrase, the freedom of the glory of the children of God there in verse 21 means. All right, moving on. Romans eight twenty-three through 25. If someone would read these verses. Romans eight twenty-three through 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grow inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. No, no, no hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. Okay. Let me summarize this. Just like the creation... We as God's children groan under the effects of sin. And we wait eagerly, just like the creation, right? Groaning, waiting eagerly. It's the same language used earlier about the creation. Now he says, we too, we groan. And we wait eagerly to be set free through bodily resurrection at the end of the age. And we have hoped and waited for this. And I'm I'm just putting this in there. Since our conversion, and I think it has to do with this phrase here, in this hope we were saved. 
So we'll, we'll get to that. So first of all, verse 23, we, we ourselves, in contrast to creation, we ourselves. And who is that? It's not everyone. It's those who are indwelt by the Spirit and who are the adopted children of God in that context, right? Christians, we, the children of God, just like the creation, we groan under the effects of sin. And we also eagerly wait to be set free from those effects through bodily resurrection, which is going to take place at the end of the age. Now, it's interesting that he says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So, the language of first fruits, some of you have heard this before, but it was often used in an agricultural context. So if you had a field that you'd planted and you'd you'd sown the seeds and you'd watered it and then come harvest time, um, it wouldn't necessarily all come up right at the same time, but some of it would, you'd have a first portion of that harvest, right? Now that first fruits, that first portion of the harvest did two things. One, it anticipated that more was coming, right? It, It said, okay, if we got this first fruits, all of the things being equal, The rest is coming. But it also gave you a a foretaste of what the rest of that harvest would be like, right? So you can say, oh, this is going to be good grain, right? If this is any indication. Well, yes, it is. That's what a a first fruits is all about. It's a, a, a foretaste and a guarantee of a future outcome, right? Now, what is the first fruits here? The first fruits is the Spirit. So he says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now I think, on the one hand, if you go back in the context, you know that he talks about that we, if we are the children of God, that means the Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption, indwells us. God used to dwell in the temple, tabernacle. Now he dwells in us by the Spirit. That's why Paul would frequently call us a temple of his presence, right? That indwelling Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, is and, and his work in us, right? So what do we call the work of the Spirit that has already taken place in our hearts? What are some ways we describe it? Sanctification. Yeah, sanctification. He's, he's set us apart unto God. Sanctification also refers to the transformation of our hearts, right? Through regeneration. What Jesus called being born again of the Spirit. New spiritual life. So if, if you had a dramatic conversion, you know, later in life, you may have just seen the results of this first fruit of the Spirit so dramatically. You used to hate God. You didn't, you didn't care about doing what was right. You, you loved your sin. The Spirit came and indwelt you and regenerated your heart. And all of a sudden, you believe in God, you trust Him, you love Him, and you want to obey Him. And you're like, what happened? The first fruits of the Spirit, right? Another way of describing it, by the way, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New spiritual life, new creation, new hearts, right? Ezekiel 36. So this is the first fruits of the Spirit. And by the way... You see, it gives you a foretaste. It, and it gives you a foretaste of what it's going to be like when God transforms you completely through resurrection. And it guarantees that. 
That's going to happen. If you are born again of the Spirit, you know you will be resurrected at the end of the age, right? So the indwelling of the Spirit and His work in us is a first fruits, which gives us a foretaste of what it will be like when our whole bodies are redeemed through resurrection. And it's like a seal. He's a seal that guarantees that that will happen. Remember Paul says, he, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, right? Now, he says, for in this hope, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is, not, that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? So certain aspects of our salvation have already occurred, right? Paul in Romans 5 said, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, something's already happened to us. You you can say, I have been saved. And the scripture does say that at times, right? It says, for by grace you have been saved. It speaks of it as a past event. Our justification, our sanctification, our adoption, right? the indwelling of the Spirit. Something's already happened. We have already been saved. For in this hope, we were saved. But there are other aspects of our salvation which won't occur until the end of the age, right? So, verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. But I think what he is saying here is, in this hope, we were saved. When we were saved in the past, when we were indwelt by the Spirit, regenerated, justified, adopted, we began at the same time to hope. To hope in that aspect of our salvation that hadn't occurred yet. And we began to live in an expectation, right? Because we groan. <laughs> and we lived with this expectation that, ah, there's more to come. And we can't wait for that to happen. And we don't see it yet, because if we already saw it, we wouldn't be hoping for it. Right? That's his point. Then finally, in those last section here, now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So precisely because what we hope for hasn't happened, otherwise we wouldn't be hoping for it, we must wait for it with patience. That word patience could also be translated fortitude, endurance, steadfastness. Why would we have to have fortitude and why would we have to endure and be steadfast? Well, if you go all the way back to verse 18, because of the sufferings of this present time, right? So we have to, we persevere through sufferings. We slog through it all. We groan under the weight of our corruption and the hardships of this life. You know, like the Israelites trudging through the wilderness. We groan under all that, but we do so with hope. And we endure because we know what's coming. And we, already, we know because we already have the first fruits of it, right? In the Spirit. Let's go for it. <laughs> what does Paul mean when he says, for in this hope we were saved, in verse 24? It is interesting that the, the Greek there, in this hope, right? In this hope could be, by or through this hope, we are saved. It could be in this state of hope, we were saved. It could be for the sake of this hope, we were saved. Or it could be for along with this hope, 
we were saved. Now, most commentators would argue that number two is correct. In this state of hope, we were saved. In other words, as soon as we were saved in the past, we also began to hope, right? That's why I used that interpretation. Because I think that while it's not the only way to understand this phrase, I think that is probably the best. It could be, number four, would also make sense, along with this hope we were saved. Uh, It's the same basic sense. But either way, the idea is that when we were saved in the past, the moment we believed, were justified, sanctified, adopted, in other words, our conversion, we began hoping in the promise of full and final liberation from sin and all of its effects through the redemption of our bodies at the end of the age. By the way, I think when in Romans 8, Paul, when he talks about our future state, he uses the language of glory. He says, for those who are predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And then in verse 18, he says, if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him, right? So it uses the language of glory. But I think that that language of glorification is nothing more than the consummation of his work of salvation in us. So we're used to using the word saved or salvation to refer to what happened to us in the past. But if you look closely, you'll see that the Bible also uses the language of salvation to refer to what will happen to us in the future as well. A good place to see this is actually Romans 5. Romans 5, if you look at uh, verse 2, he says, Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So there's that glory language again. But then you go down to verses 9 and 10, and he switches to salvation language. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So you see the future aspect of salvation. You say, well, we're already saved. How could we be saved in the future? Well, in those verses, what is he talking about when he talks about a future aspect to our salvation? What are we saved from in the future? The wrath of God. So he's saying the final aspect of our salvation could be thought of, right? We're already justified. We're already saved from the power, from the penalty of our sin. We're at peace with God. But on the last day, when the wrath of God comes upon this world, we'll be saved from that. And that will be the the final sense in which we are saved, right? The consummation of God's saving work with us. And Paul's saying, Since we're already justified, we know we will be saved from his wrath on that day. So we have to be careful if someone says, well, we will be saved in the future. Because, whoa, we are already saved in the past. You know, are you some kind of like Roman Catholic or something? You don't believe our salvation is completed? No, no, no. There is a sense in which our salvation has, we have, we have been saved. The Bible also will sometimes speak of us being saved. And sometimes it speaks of us being saved in the future. But it's just talking about different aspects of God's saving work. In the future, we'll be saved from the final judgment. Now, we're already saved through the cross from the penalty of our sin. And every day, 
we're being saved as God carries us along. All right, last, some applications here. So if you think about what we've learned, here's something we can, a way we can apply it. If we are despairing over our present sufferings, right, which is easy to do, right? Easy to do. In fact, only by God's grace, I mean not. And you want to see what that looks like, you know, read Corey Ten Boom's story of how, you know, her and her sister endured the sufferings of the death camps. And she, you know, her sister died, Betsy, but, but their faith was buoyed up in the midst of it all, only by God's grace, right? But if we find that in the midst of our sufferings, we're just drowning, we're despairing, God has abandoned me. You know, this is too much. Nothing could be worth this. We've lost sight, right? Because Paul says, who, by the way, knew what it was to suffer, right? He says, those sufferings that you're, they're not worth comparing to the glories that will be revealed to you. So if we find ourselves drowning in our sufferings and despairing and thinking, this is not worth it, you know, like Job, God, just or curse me and kill me, you know. No, we've lost sight. Because as bad as the sufferings you're experiencing might be, They're not actually worth comparing to the glories that await you. And that truth needs to buoy up your soul. Now, only God's grace can apply it to your soul in that way. But that is a truth that can carry us through. Also, we have to understand the nature of our future hope as having a physical component. Redeemed bodies in a redeemed creation, if we're going to appreciate it, as we should. So, you know, if as you're growing up and you think of heaven, you think of like angels up on a cloud, and you think that's where I'm going to. I'm, I'm going to be going, and and I won't even have my body. You know, when we die, we go to heaven. So we'll be like spirits in an ethereal realm, floating on clouds, and maybe singing endless worship music to God. Well, that's not really. The picture of salvation that is in the scripture, there is a sense in which to be, when we die, there's a disembodied state when we go to be with the Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And we don't exactly know what that is, where we're going to, what it will be like, but we do know what the end will be. And it will be redeemed bodies. In fact, these bodies, right? Just like Jesus rose with the same body, you're going to have the same body. You think you won't, but you will. It's just that, it will be so perfect that people, like, they barely could recognize Jesus, right? They, they barely recognize you. They say, Jeremy, is that you in there? Wow, you look different, right? <laughs> and most of all, they'll be freed from every corruption, every weakness. They'll be glorified. No sin, no sorrow, every tear wiped away, no more curse, right? And you'll be living in a redeemed creation. A creation set free from its bondage to corruption. See, this is the understanding of the, of the final consummation of God's saving and redeeming work in our lives. And if we don't understand that, we will have a deficient sense of what is happening, of what our hope is. Also, every Christian should be groaning over the present effects of sin and eagerly waiting for the day when they will inherit this new creation in resurrected bodies, rather than being satisfied 
and absorbed with the things of this world, right? So you remember what John says in 1 John? Do not love the world or the things of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, because he says the world and its lusts are passing away, right? Already the new creation has, we have the first fruits of it. Already it's begun to break in, in our souls, in every Believer who is a new creation in Christ. The new creation is coming in, and one day it will come in in full, and the present evil age is already passing away. So if you are absorbed and captured with and living for the things of this present evil age, and not the things of the age to come, see, something's wrong. Something's out of whack. You're not seeing it, right? You're living for what is a whisper like shaft being blown away. And you're, you're forgetting that you belong to the world to come, right? And so that's, that's important that we, that we do groan, that we don't say, ha, our best life now, this is it, you know? <laughs> Finally, to be able to endure suffering in the present, we should cultivate and strengthen our hope of final salvation by considering the promise of the gospel that we've heard and the first fruits of the Spirit we already possess. So you say, it just seems so far away. The sufferings that I'm experiencing seem so visceral, so present, so real. Or all of that that you're talking about, Jeremy, it just seems so distant, so beyond. I, I have a trouble bringing it into my life right now and, and appropriating it to my soul. Well, first of all, you have to cling to the promise of the gospel. And you say, well, how do I know that's going to happen? Because God said it would, right? Does God lie? No. If he, if he promised, we know it will happen. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? Trusting, believing God to keep his word. But also, also, he's given us the first fruits. So, Think of that as well. How do you know it's going to happen? Because of what you've already seen happen in your heart. You, you already have tasted that first crop, right? The, the Holy Spirit in your life, the, the new spiritual life that you enjoy, the love for God, the, the trust in Him, the love for people that wasn't there before. That is all like a, a foretaste. And, and it guarantees the rest. And so you can use that reality, use the promise of God and the foretaste you've already experienced to strengthen your hope in the midst of suffering, right? I know that's not easy. And again, I mean, really, only the Holy Spirit can enable us to do these things, right? But He will. He will. He'll always give you the grace that you need to get through what He's ordained for you. <laughs> Well, with those things done, let's go to the Lord in prayer and feel free to come up and talk with me after if you have any questions. Father, we thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 8. We thank you for this entire chapter, which is so rich, a treasure trove of truth that we need to take into our souls by faith, and we need the Spirit to give us hearts of belief and in these things and and hearts of acceptance. And we just pray, Lord, that you would use these truths to strengthen us 
to enable us to endure the sufferings of this present time, which can at times be very difficult, overwhelming at times, especially when there's one thing on top of another. Lord, we thank you that this is the, the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing to the glories to come, the glories of resurrection and the redemption of all creation, the setting free from the curse and all of the effects of sin. Oh Lord, this is our hope. Strengthen our hope through our study this morning. Fill us with a joy in the Lord, a joy of salvation. Lord, fill us with an eager anticipation with a healthy groaning, uh, Lord, that we would know that this world is not our home and that our final inheritance has not yet come, but it is ours and you will give it to us on the last day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.